This is a legacy episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast, originally released as part of the Lesbian Talk Show podcast group. Some references may be obsolete. The show looks at lesbian-relevant themes in history and literature, has interviews and discussions about current historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past, and presents new original historical fiction for your enjoyment. Today, the Lesbian Historic Motif Project is delighted to talk to Zen Cho, whose recent novel, The True Queen, falls in the increasingly popular genre of Regency fantasy, while expanding the scope of that genre to include non-white and queer protagonists. Welcome, Zen. Hi, hey. So, The True Queen is something of a sequel to your first novel, Sorcerer to the Crown, which I loved. But with new central characters, why don't you tell us something about the series and specifically about the True Queen? Um, yeah, um, I'm, I'm really glad you enjoyed Sorcerer. It, it is a, a standalone, basically, uh, following up. So it's set two years after Sorcerer to the Crown. Um, and it, it follows the adventures of a young woman named Muna. She's from the island of Jandabai. Which uh, readers of Sorcerer to the Crown will know as a, an island in the Straits of Malacca, um, inhabited by witches. Uh, Muna isn't a witch, however, she doesn't have any magic, she's just sort of an ordinary um, young woman who just happens to be under a curse that's stolen her memories. Um, and she's forced to go on a quest, basically, to try to break this curse when she ends up that it is killing her sister. Um, and so that's, and, and that quest leads her to England and a certain sorceress royals um, academy for teaching women magic, um, and then later on to Fairyland. Um, that's kind of what the book is about. Um, and um, it's, not a diverse, it's not a kind of classic second act of a fantasy trilogy because um, I wrote Sorcerer to the Crown um, as a standalone. So it's also a standpoint. So, but the, the, the Sorcerer Royale that you mentioned, is that the character then from Sorcerer to the Crown? That's right. So, so several of the characters from Sorcerer to the Crown um, appear again, have a, have a big role in the, the events of the book. But the, the point of view and the story is that of new characters. Uh-huh. So in both novels and in many of your short stories, Characters have strong co- connections with Malaysia, which, uh, for the listeners right now, that is in fact where Zen is at the moment while we're doing this recording. Um, so it's not at all surprising because you were born and raised there. But so why the attraction of Regency England? That's the surprising part. What did what caught your interest about that setting? Well, I, I think it's only surprising if you don't know what the bookstores are like here in Malaysia. <laughs> we, we are a former British colony. Yes. Um, and um, kind of, uh, and I, well, I think I think this applies um, to almost anywhere, um, you know, to many countries outside the kind of US and UK, um, particularly kind of, I suppose, what we call developing countries. Um, but when you, go, when you go to a bookstore here, um, you know, the majority of the books won't be by Malaysian authors, won't be published, have been published in Malaysia. Um, they will made books that have been imported in from um, from basically big five companies that supply books um, everywhere else, um, and so so you know they are books by British and American authors mainly about British American people, um, and so I, I actually grew up as a child um, reading um, a lot of British fiction particularly um, and a lot of nineteenth century British fiction, 
Uh-huh. Um, the reason for that is that I was a, I was a voracious reader, as, as many writers you know were as children, um, and I was really only allowed to buy one book book per week. We'd go to the bookshop on the weekend. My parents would allow me one book. Uh, and obviously, it couldn't be an overly expensive book. Um, so I, I made a great discovery, which was the Penguin Popular Classics, which is a series of sort of each paperbacks, mass market market paperbacks, uh, which were sort of five eighty each um, ringgit, which is less than two dollars. Um, today's exchange rate um, and wouldn't have been very much by, by you know the exchange rate of the time either um, and so so something like Jane Eyre is is a lot of reading for less than two bucks yes <laughs> and so it was, a, it was a particularly sort of economically efficient way uh, for me to to you know um, get the reading material I needed um, and for some reason um, I don't know who made this decision but the Penguin popular classics are basically the 19th century so they kind of start um, you know, Jane Austen is one of her their earlier authors, and then they kind of end around the maybe 1920s, um, you know, roughly kind of Edwardian era. Um, so Saki is one of their later later authors, um, and and apart from a couple of French authors, they're majority British as well. So it's, it's this kind of very clear corpus of fiction that um, was very, you know, I, I came to at a very um, young age at a time when you know I was, I was sort of vulnerable to influence, as it were. Um, and I think that's that's why kind of the 19th century continues to exert this fascination over my imagination. And I, and I think you know, as you know, that it's a kind of 19th century fantasy is a, is a really common subgenre. It's a kind of thriving one, um, and and it's not just people from former British colonies necessarily that, that write it. Um, so I, I, I think it's to say something about the kind of the power of the 19th century and kind of what what happened then, you know, I, I think that's when the kind of the foundation of our modern world really built. And, and I think that's part of why, why it kind of keeps drawing people to it. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. So you imprinted on it through the available literature. Well, that's right. Yeah. And I think I, I see it as well as a kind of way of engaging, I guess, with um, Malaysia's imperial, you know, kind of um, past as a, a, a colony of, of the British Empire, um, which is something I'm really interested in doing. Yeah, what, what's really clear in the pair of novels is that you are not just playing in someone else's sandbox. You are bringing, you know, your shovel and pail into the sandbox and building your own structures there. And I really loved that, that you're, you're not just recapitulating the types of stories that people set in Regency, but, you know, bringing your own stories into it and making it yours. Yeah, I think it's a it's a kind of syn- synthesis, right? So, so you know, the fact that I was a reader um, of these books means that to me, I was always in them. Yes. You know, because as, as a reader, you're participating in the books. Yeah, that and they belong to a, you. Really... I was saying they belong to you just as much as they belong to any other reader. They as much as they belong to me as an American. That that's right. Um, what I was going to say as well is is that the historically, you know. Um, you know, the colonies were, were as influential on Britain as Britain was on them. So um, so I kind of see Sorcerer to the Crown and the Queen as kind of part of this project of making that visible. Um, yes. In a way, I'm not implanting anything new. Um, you know, it, it was always there. Right. Yes, I, I'm sorry for having interrupted you on that. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> So I was delightfully surprised when I found out from someone who had read an advanced copy that the True Queen included queer characters, because there wasn't actually any clue about that in the promotional materials. 
What inspired you to take your characters in that direction? And could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, it wasn't really something, you know, that was in my mind when I set up. Part of the reason I think it's not mentioned in the promotional materials is that there, there definitely is a queer romance subplot, but, but it's very much a subplot and the, the kind of main um, relationship, the core relationship in the book, actually, it is between two women, but it's between Muna and her sister, yeah. um, Sakti. And so um, I, I think part of part of how it happened, it was just happenstance in a way. I, I tend to like, I, I write fantasy, but I tend always to include a kind of strong romance subplot. Um, I just kind of enjoy that. And, um, um, and uh, everyone in the book, every major character in the book, almost every major character in the book is, is a woman, um, to the point that when I was kind of discussing the, the outline with my agent the editor, um, before, you know, kind of at some point of the writing process, um, my agent said, well, you know, what about the romance? You know, we, we uh, you know, there, there have to be some male characters. And I was sort of thinking, sitting there thinking, well, do there? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, uh, and I, I also ran into that really classic problem, and I'm sure you, you have this as well, <laughs> where if you write um, a story that, uh, you know, a, a queer romance or a story, and or a story that's majority one gender, um, uh, you know, the, the pronouns get really sticky because, you know... You, yeah, you I keep know about pronouns. that. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to start constructing sentences in ways that perhaps feel less natural to you just so you can use the person's name rather than, you know, saying she or her because that would be too confusing. So that's what happened. Uh, so when I said that, when I started outlining the book, I knew Muna and Sati, you know, um, the sisters, their, their relationship would be the core, the kind of driver of plot. But... Um, it's a story about Muna coming to England, and she kind of meets people, you know, and um, and it's it's kind of a self discover, you know, story of self discovery, um, and um, and I I I was hoping a kind of romance would develop naturally, <laughs> you know, I didn't want to force it, but uh, but so it did happen, and I, I'm I'm very pleased about that. Um, I mean, in, in general, just having I think queer romances as well as straight romances in my stories um, is important to me. I I think just I just think. Um, it's nice to have a bit of variety. <laughs> <laughs> so I know you also have a historic romance set in the early 20th century. Our, I think that one's set in London? That's right, Perilous yeah. Life of Jane Deere. Are there any other favorite historical periods that you'd like to explore in fiction in the future? Um, yeah, well... I think there's, there's kind of one that I'm still aspiring to do, but I don't have the equipment yet, which is um, I'd really like to set um, a story, a fantasy, in uh, the kind of, uh, how do I say this, the kind of 14 to 1600s, roughly, um, in maritime Southeast Asia. So so a story set among the classical kingdoms of maritime Southeast Asia, what, which I mean kind of the Malayan archipelago, Indonesian archipelago, uh, you know, Philippines as well, um, that, that kind of whole area, because it was, you know, at that time, it was, it was, um, it was, a, it was a kind of area that had a lot going on, um, loads of kind of uh, cultural uh, intermixing, lots of hybridity, because Southeast Asia is kind of uh, between India and China, which were big powers at the time, you know, the kind of major cultural um, kind of producers, as it were. Um, and then you have this this region, which you know, there's all sorts going on. You know, you have pilgrims coming on the way from China to India, um, Buddhist pilgrims. You had, you know, obviously loads of royal families, loads of kind of um, 
um, kingdoms in this in a fairly small area. Um, pirates, obviously, it's a you know it's a sea-based society, um, and um, I think it's just a really interesting time. But um, and and undercovered, underrepresented, um, but but because it actually um, it's not that well. How do I put this? So basically, if you want to research Regency England for a book, it's super easy. There's there's several <laughs> books actually written specifically for romance writers yes. in that period, right? And they tell you exactly what you need to know from how long it will take to get from Bath to London uh, to what sort of underwear they wore, <laughs> um, which is obviously important. <laughs> well, it's important if they're taking it off. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but but. If you want to research, you know, the, the kind of classical kingdoms of maritime Southeast Asia, that's that's actually a bit more challenging. Um, and so so that's kind of an ongoing project of, of mine. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on an ongoing basis trying to find out more about that period. So eventually I'll be able to write a novel or a few novels set during that era. Yeah, that'd be fascinating. Looking forward to that. Do you have Thank a you. formal background in history or did it all come out of your love of historic fiction? Uh, yeah, no, no formal background. I'm, I'm a lawyer. I trained as a lawyer, um, but um, I think you, you know. And, and I think what I'd say is that um, history is taught in a really weird way in Malaysia, which uh, there, there are lots of omissions. And maybe that's a case of you know how history is taught anywhere. Um, but um, but the omissions are particularly obvious, I think, because they're not done very skillfully. <laughs> and there's lots of things that <laughs> that the powers that be aren't interested in having people think about or talk about. Um, and so when I was growing up, there were all these things that sort of puzzled me. Um, you know, even really basic things like, you know, like, for example, why are the bookshops full of English language books um, from by people who aren't Malaysian? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and as I grew up and started learning more about history from, I guess, informal sources, um, I started realizing that it was kind of a bigger story, and that's that's really what piqued my interest in it. Um, and I think that's something you can find in any history. So, Sorcerer to the Crown was very much because it's about um, you know England's first African sorcerer royal. That was very much inspired by um, you know going to museums and kind of seeing these paintings from European you know European historical paintings that had uh, you know kind of black people in them, um, images of black people, um, and then realizing that the history of black people in England, for example, is, is much longer than, than people suppose, you know, it, it, it's generally, the story as it's told in the UK generally starts with the Windrush generation, kind of mid 20th century, when the, um, you know, lots of people come over from the Caribbean to, to work as bus drivers or, you know, nurses and so on, you know, the, the, the British government had a kind of explicit kind of recruitment campaign, but in fact, Obviously, British people, uh, black people, were in Britain, you know, far, far earlier, um, and that, that's kind of what sparked Sorcerer to the Crown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that one of the books that is on my shelf, waiting for me to find time for it, is about black people in London in the 16th century, and the oh, yeah. more you learn about it, the more it changes how you imagine those time periods. That's right. So one of the things I often ask authors about is the challenges that they face in trying to write queer characters in historical settings that are both true to the historic setting and relatable for the modern reader. And when I was thinking about that question, it occurred to me that in some ways that might even be an easier thing as a writer to tackle than 
you know, I'm trying to figure out how to put this, but you are writing characters and cultural settings that will be unfamiliar to the majority of your readership and you do it very well. And I'm wondering, you know, is writing queer characters any different for you than presenting your non-Western characters to a Western readership? I, I think you're, I mean, I think that's a really astute point. I think, I think you're right that it's a similar challenge. Um, because in a way, in both, this is, this is going to sound slightly wrong, because what, what I'm going to say is that in a way, in both cases, you're kind of translating something. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, you're into a setting. But I think that's slightly wrong, because queer people have always been um, in every set, you know, in, in these settings. But um, but perhaps, you know, not, not understood in the way that we understand, you know, queerness and, and identity and so on and sexuality. Um, now um, and I and I suppose that's true as well of kind of you know these non-Western characters, cultures, settings. Um, I mean, one one thing that I do in *Sorcerer to the Crown* and *True Queen*, well, particularly *True Queen* because it's quite from the point of view of a character from um, Malaya, um, is is <laughs> it is kind of a translation. So I'm writing in a fairly archaic English, you know, one that sort of. Um, is reminiscent of, say, Jane Austen's English, or, or um, you know, the English of that that was used in that time. Um, so quite involved sentences, you know, and, and low re, um, period slang and that kind of thing, um, which is it is almost a character in its own right. But I'm writing from the point of view of you know an Asian character who basically wouldn't have spoken English, and I kind of get over that by, by magicking it away. But, <laughs> um, but one of the things I kind of did by, to entertain myself as I was going along was uh, was just translating, say, Malay Paribahatsa, which is a, a sayings, like traditional sayings, like proverbs, um, in, into English. Um, and the favorite one that I found, actually, um, was, and this means something like, um, you know, give you an inch and you'll take a mile, um, is uh, to, ask, to ask the, the Dutch for, no, um, you're like the Dutch asking for land. So, oh. uh, you know, <laughs> give you a bit and you will ask for some more. Um, I thought that was just brilliant, you know. Yeah. Um, and so definitely use that. But, um, but you know, I, it, it is a challenge and I think it, it takes, um, what, one way I kind of deal with it is is to, to take um, myself to, to kind of approach it and say, look, for my characters, I want I want it to be the case that um, you know to be Asian or to be queer is normative. That's just who they are, um, you know, and and not to kind of have a kind of false consciousness in a way. Like I I have loads of kind of you know, you know this kind of double consciousness, um, but that wouldn't have been the case for for someone in early nineteenth century Malaya who was you know who didn't have much to do with the British, um, and so. You know, if I if I take that experience as a as a kind of human experience, it's, it's normative, it's the default for my character, and then I go into uh, a setting that's foreign to them. That's kind of how I take it. Um, and I I, tr- I try not to explain too much because I, you know, I'm conscious, as you say, that many of my readers will be, um, for many of my readers, this will be kind of foreign culture that I'm presenting to them. But um, I always I always write. To kind of an imaginary version of myself, sixteen years old, uh-huh. um, you know, who really wanted this sort of story but just didn't have, just, just couldn't find it anywhere, um, and 
what I always think as well is that, look, I was growing up, you know, in Malaysia, in 20th century Malaysia, you know, reading about, reading Dickens, um, for example, reading about horse carriages and handkerchiefs and, you know, all sorts. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, nobody, nobody provided glossary to me. And I, I, I kind of struggled through fine, you know, and, and <laughs> well, it wasn't even that much of a struggle. So, so I think readers, you know, I think readers can take things on. I think I think there can be a tendency to kind of make things a bit too digestible for the Western reader because, you know, because everything has has been designed for them in you know in, that's been published. But I think actually, um, you kind of if you give yourself a chance, you can kind of um, you can read things that are kind of more foreign than you than you realize, and and you know, and it's and it's fine. Well, and to some extent, any modern person who's reading Jane Austen is doing something similar. You know, she was writing for her contemporaries and yeah, yeah. You, there's no need to go to footnotes to understand what's going on in the stories. Yeah, you don't need to dumb it down too much. I, I think that's absolutely right. Especially fantasy readers, you'd think, you know, would be fine with being plunged into a new world with new norms and names and all sorts. Yeah, I know I am. I, I very much prefer stories that toss me in the deep end and say, uh, you you can swim, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think most readers can swim. I think that's right. Yeah. So, what projects are you currently working on that you'd like to share with the listeners? So, unfortunately, I can't really share uh, <laughs> what I'm working on right now because they're all kind of um, you know in the code of silence at the moment. Ah. But I do have a couple of things that I'm really excited about sharing with people very soon. Um, so there hopefully won't be as long a gap as uh, between publications as there was between Sorcerer and the True Queen. Um, and um, and if you want to hear more about that, I, I'd recommend um, either signing up to my ma- mailing list. I've got two mailing lists, but one's a new release mailing list. So I only send out emails when I've got a new story out. Um, and that's probably the best way to keep track of um, what I'm what I'm publishing. Um, and I'm also obviously in social media. Um, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter as uh, Zenaldehyde. So that's Zen, A-L-D-E-H-Y-D-E. And uh, it's a dumb joke because aldehydes are made up of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. So it's, it spells cho. Yeah, um, I, I remember when I first realized that and kind of, you yeah. know, had this, this dull moment. It's like, of course. <laughs> It's because someone nicked Zencho. <laughs> so, um, puns are the way to go. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so you've got your website, zencho.org, and you're on Twitter and Facebook, which you just said. Any other social media that you'd like to tell people about? No, that's it. Um, I should have mentioned my website straight up, but you can you can find um, the mailing list, um, the subscription form for the mailing list I mentioned on my website. Uh-huh. Fabulous. I'll include links to all of that in the show notes. So thank you so much for sharing your time with the Lesbian Historic Motif Project. Thank you for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif Podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon.